So while our ushers finish with the offering, I want to take this moment um, to reflect on the tree and all parts of the tree, all right? So this is not part of my sermon. This is free. You get this one, okay? <laughs> Uh, this is, as you know, it's my first time here for the Living Christmas Tree. And um, I, I'm incredibly impressed with everything about it, uh, with exception of the lights that didn't work. And we'll get to that, okay? That'll be uh, something we'll work on for next year. But uh, since I haven't ever seen that here, I'm not missing that at all. Maybe you are, but I'm not. Uh, but. Everything about what has happened has been incredible to me. And mostly what I refer to with that is the way our church has just rallied to this. Um, Multiple levels of people involved in areas that seem to go as if there's nothing to it. And I know about logistics enough to know that uh, with the number of people involved, both those who are working and those who are coming in, Uh, the number of people involved with the technical aspect of this, obviously all of our musicians um, and those working at the uh, evangelism table in the back and people working in the kitchen area and people working to greet and and people working in the parking lot. It's just a, a mass sea of people who are working. And I want you to know, as your pastor, that's impressive. And uh, there is much to be said for a church that knows how to come together to work towards a common goal. And so to all of you who are working, I want to say thank you so much for doing that. At whatever level you're working, uh, it works. And I thank you for that. And I also want to especially say I appreciate Elvin and the work that he does. And, uh, you know, I've worked with some uh, staff members who, if on the week of the presentations, one of the major components went down, like happened with us this week, that staff member would have absolutely melted down. And Elton is just, Elvin, Elton, whatever his name is. Uh, (laughs) Man. Uh, Elvin does, I do know his name. He does incredible work. And uh, steady as you go. So... All right, the free part is over. Now we're going to get down to business. So uh, when I was taking preaching class at Wayland Baptist University, Dr. Gary Manning, you had a chance to meet him. And uh, one of these days I'll have him fill this pulpit so that you can understand why he's such an important guy in my life by hearing him yourself. But Dr. Manning taught us in preaching class that there were a number of things that you do and you don't do when you get up to preach. I don't remember if he said that one of the things you don't do is make people mad right away, but it it is something he would have said, whether he said it or not. Uh, So I'm going to take a risk today, and I'm probably going to make you mad here as we begin, but it's not really that you're going to be mad at me necessarily, or at least I hope not. It's good that you're going to have a little bit of a response, emotional response maybe, to this story. True story. Uh, On November the 15th of this year, various online and paper print uh, outlets, news media outlets, published an apology of sorts that was put out by Britain's leading bakery. The name of the bakery is Greg's, 
and they needed to repair some of the damage that they had done when they put out an advent calendar kind of promotion for their business. It was a series of advertisements, essentially. But with Christmas coming on, they thought that they would be cute and capitalize on the season and at the same time sell some pastries. And so Greg's put out this, this ad, this advent calendar of sorts, that included this scene. There was this nativity that was presented and uh, it was, you know, those really small figurines. And so in this nativity, a picture of nativity with these small figurines, there was Joseph and there was Mary and there was a manger. Seems like I remember maybe seeing a sheep there also, but it was kind of a Trump, uh, you know, kind of pulled down version of the nativity. But the thing that probably makes you mad, or at least it should at least bother you a little bit, is they had taken out one component of the nativity scene and made it what they wanted it to be. Because after all, it was an advertisement to sell breakfast pastries. Now, in East Texas, the breakfast pastry that they used as a substitute, and I'll tell you, well, I'll just tell you now, the substitute was they pulled Jesus out of the manger and put this breakfast pastry in his place. Now, in East Texas, this was this breakfast pastry they call a kolache. Now, I lived enough in Central Texas to know that other groups of people call kolache something totally different, but in East Texas, that's what they call it. My mom used to call those pigs in a blanket, all right? So, it's a piece of sausage with a breakfast pastry wrapped around it. It's delicious, but it should never take the place of Jesus Christ, so I believe. And so believed many of the Christians all through Great Britain because Greg's had to put out an apology saying, we're sorry that we offended you. Now, here's why, why I start with that. I think that's symptomatic of our times. There seems to be a willingness of many people, some even inside the church, to downplay the role of Jesus when it comes to the Christmas season. Now, I, we all know that there is no Christmas season without Jesus. I, 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 I know that, and I think that other people know that, but then I come across other news stories, like the one I saw a few years ago, where, where somebody had a very high-end nativity scene. It was kind that you set out on your lawn, and it must have been worth thousands of dollars because they had reduced the price of this, trying to sell it like on eBay or one of those kind of things. They were trying to sell this nativity scene for $1,100 with the added statement that says, no Jesus. Not K-N-O Jesus, but, or K-N-O-W, I do know how to spell, uh, N-O Jesus. They had somehow lost Jesus out of their nativity scene and believed that they could still sell the scene without Jesus in it. So I want you to hear me say this today. Christmas loses its punch without Jesus. Now we know that the way we function, but uh, let's, let's go back to where Paul has been teaching us something. We're doing baby talk here as we come to the Christmas season and we look at that little baby lying in a manger and we, I, I really hope that I've infected the way you think when you see a nativity scene somewhere because that little baby in the manger means a lot more than what sometimes we want to let him mean. And so Paul in Colossians 1 helps us with this 
Paul gives us this mature theology as he looks backwards through the ascension of Jesus Christ back to heaven and through the resurrection that came before that and through the cross event that came before that and even through his life and his teachings all the way back to that manger scene and that little baby lying in a manger, Paul gives us this picture of in Colossians chapter 1 beginning in 15. He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Here's our text for the day. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Paul gives us this great sweeping statement, this picture of who Jesus Christ is. And in this sermon series of this Christmas season, as we do baby talk, I want you to hear the words of Paul echoing through your heart and through your spirit and through your head, this baby is something else. Paul started, I'm going to start today with this kind of the the 30,000 foot view of what he says in this passage. And then we're going to come back in and we're going to deal with verse 18 in a little more uh, specificity to see what Paul is saying with a couple of these statements that he gives. But in, in, in this overview of it, what we find is Paul is making a shift today in verse 18. In verses 15 through 17, what Paul has done is he has given us this picture of Jesus as God in the flesh, as the image of the invisible God. But he goes on and he says he is the firstborn of creation. And he elaborates on that. But with that, what we find is Paul saying that Jesus, the firstborn one, is in that particular case, he's not so much talking about first. Uh, in time, he's talking about first in position. He is the active agent of creation. He has the authority and the power that is wrapped up in being God in the flesh. That's verses 15 through 17. But now, verse 18, Paul shifts the focus, and, and it's no minor shift. He's going to use the word firstborn again, and we'll look at that in a moment. But he here in verse 18, he now makes the shift that says to us that this Jesus, the firstborn from the dead, now he starts talking about redemption. He says he is the head of the body, which is the church. That's a redemptive community. He takes it a step further, and he talks about being firstborn from the dead, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But the end result of that and the shift that he makes, firstborn in creation gives him all authority and power. It reveals his power. But firstborn from the dead helps us to understand his place in the redemptive history that God has laid out for us, and he's first in that. All of that points us to the end of that verse where it says that Jesus Christ is the preeminent one. Well, of course he is. Nobody else could do what he did. Even before he was that baby in the manger, he was a busy baby creating all that there is, a powerful part of who he was. Of course he's preeminent, but Paul won't let us just assume that. He comes to the conclusion, the high point of the entire passage, as he talks about Jesus and his role in redemption, redeeming God's creation, including you and me. 
Well, that's the big picture. Let's kind of drill down on a couple of these terms today and see if it doesn't help us to understand a little better what Paul has to say. When I started this series three weeks ago, and by the way, this is the last message in the series, but when I started it, I started over in the book of Luke, and we talked about Mary a little bit. Luke chapter 2 and verse 19 reads this, and remember the scene is there in that manger where the shepherds are now there, and all of the stuff that has gone on, and the baby has been born, Luke two nineteen. but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. We started talking about Mary and what it must have, what must have been going through her head as she looks down into that baby, the most unlikely of places to have a baby. And now these shepherds come in. You can just imagine how that smelled. And they come into this area, and Mary sees this, and she hears the tales that they're telling about these angels who have showed up to announce this message. And Mary, that had to trigger back to her for her own encounter with an angel that announced to her what God was doing in her and through her. She looks over at Joseph and she sees this guy who had the opportunity to just put her away. But he had an angel encounter. Imagine as you're Mary sitting there and you're looking at this baby and all of these things are swimming through your head. Luke does a great job in just kind of catching a snapshot. The the flash goes off and we get this picture of Mary as she looks down and she's lost in thought. We don't know what she was thinking. It would be pure conjecture for us to try to put thoughts into her head. So I don't want to do that, but I will tell you this. I think I have a pretty good idea about what she was not thinking. Here's an interesting word that is used here. I'll come back to the Mary thing in just a minute. Verse 18 again, he is the firstborn from the dead. Let me take you from the beginning of Jesus' life with Mary to the end of Jesus' life with Mary. Because over in the book of uh, John chapter 19, we have this closing picture, or it's part of the closing picture. John chapter 19, verse 25, Jesus is hanging on a cross. Jesus has been crucified by the Romans in the most horrific manner of death that you can imagine. Verse 25 says, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. I want you to try to put yourself in Mary's shoes in that scene. Because here's now this son who started with incredible fanfare and lived an incredible life. Miracles, teaching, confrontations with the villains of their religious society of those days. And now he hangs dying on a cross. I wonder what Mary was thinking as she looked on that scene. And I flash backwards to that manger scene. I rather strongly suspect that when Mary looked into the face of that little baby in that manger, she was not thinking about death. Because death is an unwelcome topic at the bedside of a newborn baby. We call those tragedies and terrible circumstances. We don't like thinking about death while we're looking at a new life that holds incredible potential. 
It's not a welcome topic. I, I know that because of some of the events that happened with us and the birth of our first grandson, our second grandchild. A little over two years ago, we got the phone call that our daughter Lauren was uh, having some real struggles. She was approximately nine weeks away from when she was supposed to deliver that, her firstborn baby. She had developed eclampsia, full-blown eclampsia, as it all turns out, and she was alone at home and passed out and lost an hour of time. When she kind of came to, she called her mama, and her mama said, uh, you need to get a hold of your doctor. The doctors immediately said, we'll meet you at the hospital. Somebody came and got her, took her in, and so we were an hour and a half away. Teresa got the phone call from her that said, hey, you need to come. They're going to take the baby today. And I remember listening to her on the phone as we were trying to drive over there. Now, I say trying to drive because I, I'm a law-abiding citizen. You can tell by looking at me. My wife, on the other hand, was creating new traffic laws that day. <laughs> if we could have sprouted wings on that vehicle and flown over there, she would have been better off. And as we're driving, we hear the words of our daughters, and she's not well, and you can tell. She says, uh, they're, they're having to take the baby now. When we arrived, the nurses and the doctors informed us that it was pretty much touch and go. He was nine weeks early. Uh, things seemed to be okay with him, but he was nine weeks early. She, on the other hand, was not doing well. Weren't sure that she was going to make it through the night, they said. Teresa and I sat in the waiting room of that hospital all night long hovering between what's God doing and why won't God do something the first time we walked into the NICU and that little makeshift room that they give babies in the NICU they're made up of walls of fabric it's just a curtain hanging there there's no way in the world, I, even as a pastor, I've been in those situations a lot. There's no way in the world I was prepared to walk into that NICU and see my grandson, little smaller than your average size doll, with electric leads and tubes coming in him and out of him. I wasn't ready for that. I certainly wasn't ready for those discussions saying, we're we hope they make it. We're not sure. Death is not welcome in discussions with newborns. It doesn't fit for us. And so I strongly suspect that Mary, looking into the face of that little baby, was not thinking about death. But you can be sure that God was. Because that baby came to die. It's God's plan. Paul talks about that here. We know how all of that works. Most of us have been in church a long time. We understand that the real reason that the Christmas story is so important to us is because of the life that Jesus would live and the death that he would die. He came to die as an example, as, as the connection point for us with God. Because the curse of sin had so infiltrated the human condition that we were hopeless to have a relationship with God or to have life that he offered. We were so far removed from what God's design for creation was that it called for the perfect sacrifice. And God said, I'll send myself in the form of a son. That baby was born to die. And whether Mary saw that in those moments or not, God knew that's why that baby was here. And so Paul picks up on that term 
firstborn from the dead. That doesn't totally explain what he means by that yet, but I, I want to make sure that we get this because the key element of the transition that he makes here, moving from talking about Jesus as first in position, first in authority, and he carries all of the inherent authority, authority and power of the divine because he is divine. Now Paul turns and he talks about redemption, but we can't talk about redemption without talking about the death of Jesus Christ. The reason he came in the first place was to die. He's the firstborn from the dead, but that means that we need to kind of pick up on this term firstborn. Essentially what Paul is saying is that here Jesus is the first one to be resurrected from the dead. The way redemption happens is because of the power that's inherent in Jesus Christ. This is a powerful baby after all. It's the power that raised him from the dead. He's the firstborn from the dead. Now, let me pause for a minute, and I'm going to let some of you acutely aware Bible uh, students out there should have a little bit of trouble with what I just said. Okay, and here's what I mean by that. I said Jesus was the firstborn from the dead, the first to be resurrected, but that's not exactly true, is it? Stay with me. If, you, if you're going to call me a heretic, at least you need to quote me right, all right, and be listening well. Didn't Jesus raise some people from the dead? I could take you to Mark chapter 5, and I'm going to take the time to do it today, but you can go back there and look. In Mark chapter 5, Jesus is about the business of being Jesus. He's, he's teaching, and he's healing, and he's working his way through, and these crowds are following him. Uh, everybody in that particular area at that time, seemed, well, not everybody. The religious leaders couldn't handle him. But everybody else is going, man, this guy's something else. They hung around him. So these crowds followed him wherever he went. And in Mark chapter 5, there's this encounter that he has with a guy named Jairus. Jairus' daughter is sick, and so he's heard about Jesus. He knows he's in the area. So he goes to meet Jesus wherever he is, and he says, Hey, my daughter's sick unto death. Why don't you come and heal her? And in the midst of all that's going on there, he gets a messenger that says, Don't bother him. Your daughter died. You remember the story well enough to know what Jesus did? He raised her from the dead. So what does Paul mean when he says he's the firstborn from the dead? Because Jairus' daughter seems to fit that, at least at some level. If that's not enough for, uh, enough for you, we can go to the most famous resurrection story outside of Jesus himself, and that is the resurrection, the raising to life again of a guy named Lazarus. That's John chapter 11. Lazarus had been dead three days. In other words, there's no question that he was dead. And Jesus wasn't there. His sisters didn't appreciate that because Jesus was a friend of the family. And Jesus finally gets there three days later, and the sisters come out. And in our modern terminology, they essentially say to him, what's the deal, man? If you would have been here, our brother would still be alive. Remember what Jesus does? Hello? You remember what Jesus does? He raises Lazarus back to life. Right? So how can Paul say that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead when it comes to this whole thing about Jesus as the uh, firstborn from the dead and as the one who is the agent of redemption? What is Paul talking about? Here's the difference, all right? Here's the difference. What happened with Jairus' daughter and Lazarus later? The answer is they died. And here's the distinction. 
The reason Jesus is the beginning, as he says in verse 18, the firstborn from the dead, the reason that's true about Jesus is because when Jesus resurrected from the dead, he never would taste death again. I'll tell you, that's a huge truth. That's a testimony to the power of this baby. And in that resurrection, death was defeated. The grave has no power over Jesus Christ. Isn't it interesting in our time how much energy and money we spend on trying to prolong life? Think about that. Pay really good attention to the commercials that show on television while you're watching it. Count how many of them during prime time have something to do with some kind of a chemical concoction that will help you live longer. We have, we have approaches to the way we eat. We have dietitians, and if you're one of those, praise God for you. I appreciate it, okay? I really do. I appreciate the science of medicine that is helping us uh, with all of this. But let me tell you something. This is a closed system. We might be able to figure out how to eke out another three or four years in our lives, but the reality is this is a closed system. Nobody gets out alive except Jesus. Isn't that interesting? And it's not just that he beat death. I mean, that's enough for us to, to allow him to be preeminent, according to verse 18. It's not just that he did that. It's the way that he did that. And the fact is that he did that for us on the spiritual level. That curse of sin that separates us from a holy God. That curse of sin that keeps us from living at the level that God, God designed for us. Jesus defeated. That's powerful. Oh, that's powerful stuff. And it has to kind of eke its way down into the way we live our life on everyday kind of a basis. Back to this whole idea of living longer. I was at a clergy symposium one time. Uh, it was at a hospital, offered by a hospital. And uh, the, so they gathered a bunch of us preachers and trying to help us do better at hospital ministry. And uh, had a nun who was teaching us at this particular point. And she made a profound statement. It's stuck with me ever since. She said, medically, we have determined and figured out how to extend life beyond someone's ability to live. What she meant by that was medically we can sustain biological life to the point that someone no longer has the ability to get out and live life. I say that today because I happen to believe that that's true not so much just on a medical level, but certainly on a spiritual level. Our world is full of people who are living, but they're not living. Only Jesus gives the life that is available through him. Because he is the firstborn of, of creation and the firstborn from the dead, and because he is the beginning, because he is the head of his body, the church, he ushers in the opportunity for us to live life. So you don't have to be 113 years old and not be able to live life. I, I know 15-year-olds and 51-year-olds and everywhere in between who are living life as if it's life, but they're living it without the life who is Jesus Christ. 
That may be you here today. It's possible that we have people in this room today who are going through life without the benefit of Jesus Christ offering real life. After all, he is the one who said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. We've talked about that before. But he's the one who also says, the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I come that you may have life that will blow your mind. He is the preeminent one. That baby in that manger was more than just a cute kid. I'm sure he must have been, but he's more than that. That baby is powerful because he defeated the one enemy that we can't beat, death. So do you live with that power in your life every day? I have a, I had a brother-in-law. He's since gone on to be with the Lord. But he went on a mission trip down to Brazil. And part of his time there, uh, they went out to, uh, we would call them colonias. I, I think I was told that they're called favelas in, uh, in Brazil. It's just a little makeshift kind of a town thrown up, a community thrown up. And uh, it was made of cardboard. And it was along the canyon walls near a dam that was built for hydroelectric supply of energy into the city. And uh, so these people who had nothing in life went out and they just put up cardboard and they lived out there without electricity and anything like that. And, and my brother-in-law came back after visiting in that area and he said, you know, Mark, he's, he said it was such an ironic thing for me. He said, all of these people who were living in these little cardboard shacks with no power at all, while just a few feet away were cables that supplied energy for an entire city. Living so close to power, but having no way to tap into it, to take advantage of it. That is our world today, you know. So many people living just one prayer away from unleashing divine power in their life. And yet they live like there's no power available. How about you today? Are you tapped in to that power that that baby had? Do you know the power of Jesus in your everyday life? Do you know the power for him to take that sin and the curse of sin in your life and remove it from you never to be haunted by it again where Jesus says, come to me all who labor and I will give you rest. Come to me, I am the life that you need. Do you have that power? Do you know Jesus in that way? If you don't, don't leave here today without knowing that Jesus and that power in your life, the saving power of Jesus Christ. But I also know that many of us have taken that step long since, but we live our everyday lives under our own power instead of tapping into his and letting him be the preeminent one of our lives. How is it with you today? Let's pray. And as we pray, the invitation to you is that you listen and that you appropriate the power that is available to you. Jesus Christ will help you with the deepest problems of your life, but you have to invite him into your life. If you haven't done that, this invitation is for you today. Father, we pray that you would allow your spirit to work good work in our lives even now.
that you would touch hearts, that you would convict us where we need to be convicted of those places where we've kind of built walls and tried to push you behind them so that we could live under our own power. We pray that you would change us now for your glory through Jesus Christ and his power. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.